morning. You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka. We are also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. You can also catch our live Facebook streams on the New Haven Independent Facebook page as well as MWM Radio Facebook page. Um, And I want to welcome you to the show on this beautiful Wednesday morning. We are here this morning and you know it's Wednesday because it's your Wednesday morning voice. Uh, And we are talking uh, with Reverend William Mathis this morning. Thank you very much for uh, joining me. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Reverend. He is a pastor of the Spring of Life Giving Water Church on Sperry Street in New Haven. He also runs a nonprofit called WLM Ministries has worked with a U.S. a U.S. Rep. Charles Rangel and graduated from Harvard Divinity School. He is a former director of Project Longevity, a federal and state and city program to reduce gang violence. He works in the community on racial justice issues um, and many issues around the formerly incarcerated individuals. Uh, and that is just a snippet of his <laughs> bio. I I looked up the bio and I was like. Wow, that's the whole show if I read all of that. (laughs) So very, very impressive with all of uh, his advocacy and his community work. Um, And when I thought about doing a show about uh, Juneteenth and systematic uh, um, racism and just talking about the issues of black America, you were the name that was that came up to came to mind and uh and so we was like, we got to get the reference. <laughs> well, I am happy uh, that uh, you chose me. I'm humbled uh, by what I believe God has just opened door after door of opportunity for me. Uh, and so part of my commitment, not only to my people, but also to community, is my way of giving back and being showing gratitude to God for what he's done. One correction, though, uh, one thing I'm very proud of, the Springs of Life-Giving Water Church, we purchased our own property now, and we are now located in the Hill South section at uh, Howard and Lamerton Street. Awesome. Mm. Okay. All right. Moving on up. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, so first, tell us a little bit about you. How did you get into advocacy work? Is this something that you've done since you were young? Like, tell us a little bit about your history in being an advocate for the community. Uh, uh, part, uh, I think it was natural for me. Uh, I grew up uh, in the Deep South, in particular Albany, Georgia. Albany was one of the places that they said that King failed and the movement failed in. Uh, and uh and that's questionable, but nevertheless, it was a very active city, and uh, so were my family was very much involved. The church I grew up in was very much involved, and so it became a natural flow of who I was. However, though, I, I kind of always knew I wanted to do advocacy. I was headed toward law school. Those are the things that I thought would uh, fit me well, but it really happened, I guess, uh, I was a senior in high school. Uh, by that time, we were integrated. Uh, I was a predominantly white school. I was president of the student body. And I took on an issue around an assistant coach who happened to be African-American as well. And that didn't sit too well with the Board of Education. Uh, <laughs> neither my principal and uh, head guidance counselor. Uh, and so uh, that kind of really began the advocacy, the protest, the radical uh, uh, Bill Mathis. Uh, uh, and it got its launch from there. And I think it was just only reinforced as a result of my being at Morehouse College, uh, 
and being surrounded with other people from around the world who also saw those issues as important and should be a part of whatever we do. Awesome. Awesome. And as you, so one of the things that I, that specifically that I I wanted to um, um, talk a little bit about is just the issue about Juneteenth and, and, and it's history and it's significant, it's it's significance, but um, the interesting thing about just your, your particular history is you growing up so far in the deep South. And when we think of deep South long time ago, we think of, all of the racism, both systematic, overt, mm-hmm, <laughs> there was absolutely. no hiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going to Morehouse College and what that educational experience must have been like. Because for me personally, I have to be honest, I actually did not know what Juneteenth was until I was adult. Mm-hmm. Like it was just, I never even mentioned to me. We were like, oh, slavery ended in, 19, in 1863. And we just thought that that was the truth. Yeah. So that was, that must have been an injury. How was that experience of, or your experience of learning about black history from Georgia to Morehouse? How, how was that experience? Uh, uh, again, I, I do think that there is a difference because now, uh, since I graduated from high school, I have never really lived back home in Albany. I see a family there. I go back regularly and et cetera. Uh, so I've had the benefit, if you will, of two worlds, the northern urban life, uh, particularly in the northeast and uh, the deep south, segregated south uh, life in Georgia. I think the difference uh, based upon that comparison uh, my awareness, our awareness was much more communal and therefore much more in line with, I think, were traditional ways of communication and connection, storytelling, um, uh, the fellowship from house to house and et cetera. And so information was passed that way. Uh, also, it was important in my home. It was important in my community. It was important in my church. Just not to understand that we were Americans, but that we were black people and we had a rich history that was beyond slavery. Mm. Uh, also, uh, I uh, for a portion of my educational experience uh, in um, elementary and middle school, et cetera, I was in a segregated school. And mm-hmm. so I knew all the teachers. They knew me. Uh, they knew my family. We, we all fellowshiped. If we didn't go to the same church, we fellowship one another. Uh, and part what a part of what was integrated in our educational experience was also things about us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the most striking thing from Morehouse to Boston College Law School to Harvard. And in my exchange with my brothers and sisters who may have been in undergrad programs in Boston College or Harvard, is that you had to specifically take additional class to learn about black people and their mm-hmm. contributions. Mm-hmm. Whereas at Morehouse, when I studied humanities, I studied Plato and Aristotle, but I also studied uh, uh, black people as well. They were a part of the same program. It wasn't separate and distinct or some special uh, 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 day or a week in the curriculum. Uh, and so I do think that has been the difference of of knowing, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, more about those things that were significant to our struggle and to our progression here in America. I think it had a lot to do with the community that that because we were forced to uh, 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 teach us about us. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, going to a place like Morehouse. Uh, that prided itself in a whole uh, well-rounded education that was inclusive and not necessarily exclusive or special to us. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that is really fascinating. So that that that's really interesting because it you know there is this new debate on whether or not of uh, 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 one whether or not the public school system really serve black kids. Um, you know, and the idea of a lot of parents. One of the upcoming shows that we have is parents talking about black parents in particular talking about why they chose to homeschool. And that's one of the things that I hear the most often is that, you know, you can integrate your own history into your child's education. And that is significant. I think that makes a huge difference. Well, I think I think all of us can admit whether we're black or white, whether or not we're conservative or liberal, that one's self-esteem is critical to one's advancement and one Absolutely. feeling whole about himself. And if you're in school, and particularly a public school in a city like New Haven that is majority people of color, and you have some side issue or you, uh, it is not fully integrated and you never really hear or learn anything about positive contributions, that's uh, and then on top of that, you see television and all you see are drug dealers and people who are violent and who are being arrested and we're looking for. And the positive people you see for the majority of the day all don't look like you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, what I, 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 I don't know what we would expect from our children, uh, because mm-hmm. when low when there's a low self-esteem and they're not being reinforced and not being made to feel confident about who they are they then adapt to who other people define them to be. That's a great way of putting it. That is, that's really profound. That's a great way of putting it. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Mornings with Mubaraka, and we are talking with Reverend William Mathis of the Spring Life Giving Water, Spring of Life Giving Water Church. <laughs> That's a little tongue twister, yeah, a little bit, yeah. just a little bit. So, our sub, my initial subject, you know, I'm just, I'm, I don't want to get off track here because mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, he is a pastor, so you know, he he might mesmerize us with his articulation no, here. <laughs> so I'm trying to stay on track. That's that thing. Said, I'm just trying to make it plain. There you go. There you go. Um, Juneteenth is, uh, is. The 19th of June, um, 1865. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about the history of it and the significance. Uh, well, a uh, 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 part of it, uh, uh, and this is not necessarily an excuse, it's just the context of the time. Uh, we're traveling and getting to Texas uh, uh, in particular uh, that the war was over and that the slaves were free and et cetera, um, uh, is kind of the part of the backdrop. Actually, I was watching a movie. I'm a movie buff. Uh, and I was watching uh, The Free State of Jones. Uh, and it was uh, 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 poor whites and blacks who had combined together and, quote, unquote, succeeded from the Confederacy and was fighting the Confederate Army uh, and was soliciting minimal help from General Sherman and the Union troops. And uh, uh, it was also a kind of like a delayed kind of thing when they got the information that the war was over. Uh, and then also uh, when they got the information that we all get 40 acres and a mule and that never materialized. And so it's a delay in communication. I, I see symbi- symbols of that in our modern day uh, experience uh, because I think there are 
those of us, and I would include uh, myself in those us who have been fairly educated, who have networks and access to information. Mm. Uh, what we do with it, whether we do anything with it or not, is another question, but we have access to that information. But the majority of people who the information is supposed to benefit generally don't get it until delayed fashion. Mm. And once they get it in a delayed fashion, then the opportunity to seize stuff and to do things is now gone. Mm. I.e., uh, maybe uh, that is kind of like history of how they. I.e., um, that was a, when I was in Project Longevity. They were looking for uh, creating jobs and skills for reentry people, and they were doing medical data input. Mm-hmm. Now Yale is laying off in the IT department and et cetera because uh, the information that we had, some of us had before. That's only limited. That will not sustain a living wage for those families and keep them from uh, uh, keep them in a, a holistic kind of way. Mm. And but the information to the people is that well, great. Somebody's gonna give me a job and give me some training. I'm gonna get a job, and so they get the job. And now uh, with the layoffs and et cetera, they are now frustrated. Mm. Uh, so, but this, they came to the party late. They, they came to the party late. Mm. We get to the party late, uh, and and part of that, I don't necessarily blame those who are non-color totally. Uh, I also blame many of us who have that kind of access and who have that kind of information. Uh, again, very different from my my uh, my upbringing in the South as opposed to my living in the urban centers northeast. Down south, the lawyer, the doctor. Uh, the garbage man worker, the farmer, everybody saw themselves as community. Mm -hmm. And so we did what we needed to do, not just to lift up myself or or my family, but our entire community. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never will forget going away to college. People that I would come home on Sundays to church, people give me $5 so I can get me a Pepsi. They give me $20 if I get get a book. Uh, They wanted to make sure I was doing it. And they were not necessarily my family. I went to church with them. There were people in the community. People do because I was getting a degree from Morehouse College, not just uh, me, but it was a degree that was significant for the entire community Mm -hmm. in which I operated. And I think when we have information, we make the information available at the time when it's appropriate for us to seize that information and do something with that information. Medical uh, uh, inputting was not a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. But I think if we had taken the information we had and did something to build and build a sustainable thing through that, we should be training our people around medical technology. That's the move here in New Haven. Mm. That's the import of other people coming to the community, and they are now moving us into the suburbs. Again, access to information and receiving the information delayed. Mm. And so all of us will be living out there when all of the services and support to, to a quality of life will be in the city. Mm, wow. That, that's a lot. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> you gave, gave me a lot. You, oh, you gave me a lot. <laughs> gave me a lot. That, that's why I don't have me on a whole lot of shows. <laughs> no, that was awesome. That was awesome. It was absolutely correct. Right on the money, though. Yeah. That I think. So in when we talk about that community which we have lost to a, a significant extent in African-American community. How do we get back there? How do we get back to <clears throat> your success is my success? I think we have to be intentional. Uh, 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 I, I do think faith-based communities are cr- 
critical, even though our numbers may be declining in particular among millenniums in our community, it is still the most significant institution in our community that we pretty much law own the lock, stock, and barrel. <coughs> so I do think faith-based communities play an important role of fellowship, uh, fellowship of people from all different strata, uh, economic stratus, uh, but also of all kinds of faith. Um, you know, the issues, uh, I'm not suggesting that there were never issues, of course, between faith and principle and practice and et cetera, but they were not as significant until we became integrated. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and not to say that integration is a bad thing. Mm. Integration the way it worked is a bad thing mm. uh, because it really... Uh, uh, fell in line with assimilation as opposed to total integration. I can be who I am and be accepted as a part of that. So I do think faith-based communities, even though we are not all uh, monolithic and not all believe the same thing, is a great opportunity for there to be an exchange and fellowship and the coming together of community. That takes the leaders, though, of those faith-based mm-hmm. communities to understand the necessity of community when I, uh, within our people. You know, as uh, as uh, I do some work with my nonprofit around the globe, in particular in Latin America, as well as on the continent, and a number of places where I do work, there are things that were very, very similar to my growing up in uh, Albany, Georgia, in Deep South. Uh, that's because we're communal people by nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we're forgiving people. <laughs> uh, that's why people generally take advantage of us, mm-hmm. uh, because we see community as important naturally. And, uh, and and so what I'm suggesting is that faith-based communities could play a significant part in that because it still has a large chunk of our community and that the they should, one of the things could be doing is they should, should be initiating and intentionally building bridges across those divides that integration and other people who are not necessarily of our best interest. I would dare say that would be between uh, the Christian and uh, the uh, atheist, um, black, uh, 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 Muslim, uh, Islamic uh, communities. I think that's wrong beyond straight and uh, uh, gay and lesbian and bisexual community. I think that should be between uh, those from the upper class, uh, highly educated, those who had, you know, they don't, they don't even hit the economic uh, uh, map. Uh, uh, and those who don't have, uh, who have not uh, had the advantage of education, I think we should be intentional about building those bridges. Mm. And so we've talked about um, this intentionality of building community. What's What's the way to get people on the same page? Because all of those communities that you mentioned, there are some significant divides. Yes. We know African-Americans okay. have a very contentious relationship with the LGBTQIA. Mm-hmm. I think I got all the acronyms. I, I didn't try it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got it. <laughs> um, community. Um, and there is, there's, so there's like all of these separations. Is it the, is it the leaders? Is it, the people is it who is that person to step in and say hey this is the first brick for the bridge yeah i do think it is our leaders it is uh 
Uh, I think probably on ground, we'll find that there are more connections uh, and quote-unquote communities than we really think. I think it's the leadership who, because this has been the position that we have taken, and in my own com- uh, in my own faith community, there are of us who have been talking and discussing and uh, having intellectual intercourse uh, about uh, these kinds of things that 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 suggest to us that we're la- allowing other people to drive our narrative mm-hmm. instead of us driving our own. So I do think that leaders could move the ball much quicker. Uh, but I do think on the on the on on ground level, some of that is happening. Mm. Uh, for instance, I am a part of a group, and this is not necessarily uh, a group led of color, but a part of a group uh, in which uh, there have been opportunities for Christians and uh, Muslims to sit down and talk about issues just right here in New Haven mm. uh, and where we have had opportunities to share uh, both in meal and in fellowship. I think fellowship is critical and important to building anything and developing and mending bridges. Mm. Uh, uh, and I feel the better because of it. Mm. Uh, and it challenges me in my own thinking and our own rhetoric. Sometimes that comes out mm. without thinking because we've been so set in such a way that it challenges me to, 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 to move, to move the ball uh, further. Uh, I do think those kinds of engagements are the kinds of things I'm talking about that I believe should be, that should be happening in our community and particularly among our leaders that help us to build those bridges, to mend those bridges mm-hmm. one together. Because if you remember, uh, I think if we look at history, segregation, we've always had uh, a gay community and there has been an active gay community. All mm-hmm. the Renaissance is evident about it. Uh, 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 are there tensions? Absolutely, there's some tensions. But it was nothing that we couldn't work through and that we didn't celebrate each other mm. as, a reg- as, a, as a result of it. And so instead of taking other people's narrative and trying to adopt it, we should kind of recapture ours and develop it. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. And I think once we come together, we, we find out that we have shared experiences and thus we can move towards shared resolutions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> to be very honest, as a Christian in my faith practice, that's how we just celebrated Pentecost. That's what happened on Pentecost. There were 120 people in an upper room, and they were there for 50 days. All we know is that they prayed, and they selected somebody to fill Judas' spot. Mm-hmm. That praying, which I believe is just simple communication with God, and we all are in the image of God, communication and fellowship with one another, they eventually, according to the text, that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all on one accord in one place. And there came the rush of a mighty wind, the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm, mm. And so that that, so that kind that's of a powerful thing. story of unity. <clears throat> yeah, that uh, and I think you cannot have unity if we continue to stay in our boxes. But Absolutely. the more we are community, because we're naturally communal people, we naturally have connected and we have shared experiences. We'll, it'll move us towards shared resolution. I, that's wow. my personal thing, and that's some of the. That's that's the theory behind some of the work that I do in WLM ministry, the shared experiences to share resolution. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we're talking to Reverend William Mathis. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your work with um, with formerly incarcerated people. So we know that the, the, the prison system 
itself has been in the forefront of the news, thanks to 13th, thanks to uh, the new Jim Crow book. And so I think people are actually starting to think about it more in terms of its impact on the larger society, particularly its impact on black people. So we know statistics like uh, the amount of black people under the penal system today is the same amount that was enslaved the day before the Civil War. Um, it, it really it really creates a a picture of a continual slavery you know, it's really interesting that so recently over the weekend, I went to I was a speaker at an, a Uganda American Muslim Association conference. Mm-hmm. And I had a really interesting conversation on the way to the airport with a gentleman who who's from Uganda. And his question was, why can't things change when the physical cha- when the physical chains are no longer there? Like what is what's happening with black people in America? And we we had a really interesting and I think very thought provoking <coughs> conversation about the difference between an African in America experience and an African Americans experience. Um, and and so and that really it got my my thinking wheels a little bit more and hopefully I explained it and, and the, the conversation was just as impactful for him. But the idea that there are the same amount of people that are that are imprisoned that was in slavery is really a like very clear connection between the prison system and slavery. How did you get into this work and what are some of the. I, I have a lot of questions, but tell me how you got into the work first. <laughs> I, I, uh, to, to be very honest, um, uh, I stumbled into it. Um, my last year at uh, Morehouse, I knew I wanted to go into law school. <clears throat> Shirley Chisholm was visiting at Spelman, uh, our sister school right across the street. And so, and she was teaching in the political science department. So that was one of my majors. And so I took a class with Shirley Chisholm. And um, Ms. Chisholm really became a mentor. She got me the job with Charlie Rangel on the select committee on narcotics abuse and control. And that began a kind of courtship, if you will, uh, with work around um, uh, prison, reentry, rehabilitation, all of those kinds of things. Because again, just as it is today, drugs are the, one of the leading causes of the incarceration, um, particularly of African-American males. Um, uh, and if you would look at the statistics, then it's pretty much the same now. Uh-huh. I do think Michelle Alexander, who is the author of the new Jim Crow, uh, tapped into something. When I said earlier, when we got this information mm. and we don't know what to do with it, and then it, when it eventually gets down, it's too late. Mm. She had the information and she put it out. Mm. Uh, and many of us who are working in the field, and I and I say us, you know, I've always kind of been slightly radical, but I, I have patience. I try to work with you if I think you're trying to get to the to the appropriate end. But when I discover that you're really not trying to get to the appropriate end, then I kind of let loose. Um, I had that experience. <laughs> um, um, uh, I think she put it out because it is something that we seriously got to look at. Those numbers do not lie. Mm. 
Mm. I One, we do have to deal with the fact of those who, quote unquote, in positions of power who continue. And we got all kind of programs. So we didn't come out with wonderful ideas. Uh, we, you know, we do this, we do that. And then the, the wind of the grant community will blow this way and we're out. We're doing that and we're doing that. But I think it's all a constructive effort to continue it as it is. Mm-hmm. It's just a new form of slavery. Now, for us, it's psychological slavery. And so a brother from Uganda or a brother from um, Trinidad and Tobago who can come here and it is a little different for them. It's because the mindset is different. Mm-hmm. Our mind, We are still psychologically chained to mm-hmm. slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this goes back to the education piece. If that's the only significant historical fact about who you are and Absolutely. what they teach you, what are you else you're going to think? Right. Absolutely. Uh, and <clears throat> I think contributing to this, this goes to this community piece. When I grew up, and I think even in urban communities probably early on, black people of every educational uh, stratum or economic stratum kind of all mingle with one another. Mm. When I left home, I didn't know we were poor because everybody in my community lived. And I knew a lawyer who lived over here in Georgia. Oh, all of us just kind of lived together. Mm. Um, um, uh, we have displaced, those of us who have been advantaged, we've displaced ourselves from community. Mm. So there are no active role models. There are no active people mm. in in the community that John John can look up and say, right. I'm going to be him one day. Right, right. So, so when you when you make it, you move out of the hood, and that just leaves the hood by itself. And so, the and the drug dealer who is helping to pay the bills mm. is the, the hero. Becomes the hero. Yeah. And so there's that a psychological uh, kind of thing, and it becomes a branding. That's how I become a man now because I went to jail, mm. or because I did this or I did that, and that's and that continuously reinforced again another significant role for faith-based communities and its leaders is to be honest with our people, not just about what would have been done to us, but what we must take in charge of ourselves mm. in order if we're going to live and stop allowing what is the, the win of the grant community to drive the narrative of how we handle our stuff. So what, so it, the, I think the, the funding of some of these programs that are impactful in and reentry and preventing incarceration. Do you think that it's something that should it should just naturally be inside of, say, the city or the state budget as opposed to the grant community? Because, you know, this year reentry may be sexy and then next year, you know, <laughs> something <laughs> that, else may be sexy. You hit it on the head. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I do think given this is such a significant and critical uh, um, a problem for uh, for an important um, block of our citizenry that this should be something that's naturally built into our budget uh, that goes to, and I've been having my issues. I don't know if I'm a Democrat no more uh, 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 is uh, uh, I think uh, what this last election taught us to, we just continuously being taken advantage of yeah, uh, um, uh, you. And we hold down the fort while the liberal white women wing can go to say, you know what? I think protection of my child is a little bit more important. Mm-hmm. And I think he's going to be tough on him. So I'm going to go in this booth. I told him I was going to vote for Hillary, but I'm going to go in this booth. And I'm going to vote for him because I think it's going to be better. And we'll get over him for, mm-hmm. you know, four years and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we got sold out. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
<laughs> and we were holding up the bloodstained banner. Just in our faith church. Holding up the bloodstained banner on that behalf. Uh, I do think we've, again, that's why it's important that we begin to develop and nurture community, building the bridges within us, the things that other uh, uh, other people and other things have caused division. Because if we're going to advance, it's going to be because we're intentional about our advancement. And we cannot leave that in the hand to the government. We cannot leave that in the hand of the grant community. It has to be in our hands where we are particularly invested. Um, one of the things as a Christian, but also a very, very proud person of the African diaspora, that I had to reconcile. I think um, my experience at Harvard Divinity School helped me to do that. I had to reconcile if the God who is a God of love that I believe is in control and is uh, in charge of everything, how could he allow the Middle Passage? Mm. How could he allow the brutality of slavery, not known like this anywhere else in the world, mm. to to people whom you said, out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son. Mm. Um, I got to believe that God allowed us to go through the storm and the chaos because he believed we had the gifts and abilities to advance. We are now in the country and the most prosperous and whether or not accepted or not, the leading country in the world, not travel the world, in country in the world, we should be seizing opportunities as a community to take the helm, to drive narratives, not just for us, but because the world we live in is becoming global. Mm. And if we don't seize the opportunity now, of those of us with all the necessary information, seize the opportunity now, then there's a increasing Asian effective communities moving all over the world. I was just in Paris last week at a conference, but also was talking with some colleagues and et cetera. We went to uh, Chateau Rouge, which is the African immigrant community in Paris. Uh, and uh, all of the shops are now owned by Asians. Wow. The really? African people are in the streets with boxes putting their goods on the thing and scrambling when the police, local police come in because they no longer can afford the rent of the shops. Wow. The regentrification that's happening in Chateau Rouge uh, and the old historical buildings in that part of Paris are being refurbished beautifully, but they no longer are living. A lot of African immigrants are living on the street. Wow. Uh, I, I, uh, and, and that's not just in Paris. You can go to a number of cities around the world where mm. that's happening. Mm. The major uprising in Brazil now has a lot to do with the fact that the majority of the nation is being straddled and is being ignored economically in what is an emerging economic power in the world. Wow. wow. And so uh, I, I think when we fail to drive our own narratives and leave it to governments and leave it to other people and grant communities and where they are, here and there to do it, we find ourselves always under the gun. We see we see temporary relief, but no sustainable joy. Mm-hmm. And I think when we come together uh, and God allowed us to go through what we went through here to have and to leverage what is of America in the rest of the world to lead and to be a, a participant in the emancipation, the freedom, the liberation, the advancement of black people globally. Mm. Well, I'm Muslim, but right now I'm going to be like, amen. 
I got to amen to that, y'all. <laughs> I got to amen to y'all. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise him. <laughs> Remember, Mathis got me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you tell your husband that. <laughs> I and that was that was deep. I love that. I love that. And, and you're absolutely correct. One of the you know one of the things that I I, I personally always try to do is I look for um, black businesses mm-hmm. to support. Um, let's talk a little bit about kind of like on a practical level, how black people need to do that as far as, um, empowerment. I think that now is, uh, an interesting time for black people in America because with all of the, uh, political strife, (laughs) with all of the political strife that we, um, that we are going through, I think black people uh, we were until a couple of weeks ago when Jeff Sessions started uh, doing uh-huh. his decrees, kind of like flying under the radar. Muslims have been taking the forefront of discrimination. Immigrants have been taking the forefront of discrimination during the election. It was a huge, you know, uh, um, spotlight on women treatment. And so my fear in this election cycle is that once again, we will get comfortable, but kind of like sitting by the sidelines. And then the way racism actually rears its head is in a very sneaky way. It's Mm -hmm. like the snake in the grass. You Mm -hmm. can't tell what's the grass and what's the snake because they're both green. But then Jeff Sessions comes and acts a a congressional panel if he can pursue medical marijuana dispensaries in spite of states making it legal when he uh, you know, he recently said that he wanted to particularly pursue marijuana um, violations. And this has been a, a key form of getting people incarcerated. You know, I have a statistic here that says that um, in In the 1990s, 80 percent of the incarcerations of black people had to do with marijuana. Mm -hmm. Like that's a significant way of getting black people in jail. So how do what are some of the practical things as we come to the last few minutes of our show that uh, as a black community, we need to do to redefine and retell our own narrative? Okay, Um, I'm going to back into it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what Jeff Sessions uh, has done. Not necessarily what he's done, but what the reality of the fact. Well, the majority of people who use drugs in America are not black people, are not people of color, or white. We know they, this. Again, <laughs> yes. this is about a in, uh, what I believe is an intentionality of the, not necessarily the police force. I want to say our black chief, our, our police chief is just out to arrest uh, black people. Our, our black, there's some wonderful officers who happen to be of color and some who are not of color. Uh, but the policies in themselves like that mm-hmm. uh, are directed because you're not going to go to my neighborhood in Beaver Hills and sit on the corner and watch people go in and out of houses, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you will go into the tray and et cetera and watch people going in the house and et cetera uh, and then eventually find some marijuana. So it's a policy. Uh, and I think we have to be strategic and smart enough as community, in particular our leaders, uh, to um, to use a scalpel and go after policies mm. and not necessarily always practices. I can't convince no white cop to be 
uh, non-racial. Mm. If, if you are racist, you're racist in your heart. Right. I don't care if you're a police officer, you're a preacher. It, it just, you're just racist. Uh, and so I'm not trying to convince you of that. Mm-hmm. What I, do, I am, as a citizen, I'm going to ensure that the policies don't take on a structural racism framework that allows for what's inside of you to come out and use it in this sneaky kind of way. Mm. I think that is, uh, that's better done when we start coming together as a community and get over our little petty differences and start looking at policies and how they are structurally and systematically uh, 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 manifesting racism in our community. Mm. The other piece uh, uh, <clears throat> that you asked about uh, um, was this um, this sense of entrepreneur, uh, black-owned. Mm-hmm. And how do we build? I do think we have to build on an economic base so that we're not chasing the wind of what's the new grant idea and the new mm-hmm. thing that, that we have to build our own base. There are some things that are happening here in New Haven that I don't think uh, maybe that's part of our fault that we have really not marketed well. But there's a group that came together called the Beloved Community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a group of uh, people of the African diaspora Uh some people may call them leaders, but we just call our people ourselves committed to community. Uh, we start doing a buy black campaign of uh, one um, uh, Black History Month and then just continued. I, I'm like you. I try to look for a black business. I, even to get uh, get a uh, manicure, I try mm-hmm. to find me a black business. Like going after here, as a matter of fact. Uh, my <laughs> papa, uh, <clears throat> when I go out to eat, when friends come to town, et cetera. We are limited. I think we can expand it. But again, I think building communities and I think faith-based communities are critical to that because they then can be become sources, not the total source, but can be the sources of resources in order to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but again, that takes a mindset from the leader. I'm not interested in being in no photograph with the, the mayor or some politician. I'm interested in being in a position where we can leverage our resources so that we can own our own stuff and therefore drive our own narrative. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. This was a really, I, I love it. I did mm. This is one of my favorite interviews. Yep. I, was, I happen um, to have you back on the show. Yes, I <laughs> I'd be glad to come <laughs> I thank you. I appreciate you coming. Um, and uh, for everybody out there, I want to thank you for listening. This is Mubaraka Ibrahim reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.